Hi, this is Chris Date, and you're listening to the The Apologetics Podcast, episode 104, She Leads the Way. I want to talk about briefly before we get into part two of my recent interview with egalitarian Dr. Philip Payne. First, some time ago, my friend Dee Dee Warren called me the powerlifting apologist in an episode of the Preterist podcast, and I'm thankful to be able to say that the powerlifting apologist is back. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I began a diet and began strength training again. I've lost about 20 pounds in those two weeks, and my lifts are nearly as heavy as when I last competed back in December of uh, 2010. So it's got me planning to compete once again, probably in June of 2013. Please be praying for me as I try to get back down to competition and weight. Uh, in fact, I'd like to try to get down to even the next, <clears throat> even the next lighter weight class. Uh, you know, pray that I'd be disciplined, but would eat healthfully and not over overdo it. <laughs> uh, and pray that I'd be consistent in my workouts. Uh, I'll say it's it's feeling really good to be getting back into shape. My clothes are fitting more loosely. I'm more comfortable with what I see in the mirror. And gosh, I just feel healthier and more fit overall. So I'm really looking forward to the continued progress and to competing. Uh, the second thing I wanted to mention was that after my debate a number of months ago with Joshua Whips, I said that I wouldn't be covering the topic of hell in this podcast, at least not for some, you know, for some time. And I stand by that. But a written debate in which I recently participated has recently been published at my friend's blog at splitframeofreference.blogspot.com. I was invited, perhaps obviously, <laughs> to write in defense of conditional immortality. Uh, Jason Pratt, who you may recall debated pseudonymous blogger Turretin fan on my show a ways back, uh, Jason Pratt wrote in defense of universalism. And T. Kurt, that's the letter, that's the initial T, apparently the middle name Kurt, and the last name Jaros or Haros, I'm not sure how to pronounce that. Uh, he wrote in defense of the traditional view of hell, or at least a you know, sort of variation thereof. Now, we were only allowed about uh, 700 words, so it'll serve as a good introduction for those of you new to the debate and want to see a very brief, summarized case for each view. Also, be keeping an eye out at RethinkingHell.com, as I've got a response to Kurt's essay pending review by our editor, uh, and it should be uh, published soon. Uh, friend and fellow rethinking, uh, sorry, <laughs> friend and fellow rethinking hell contributor Joey Deer uh, will be working on a response to Jason's essay. So check those things out and be sure to let me know what you think. Third and finally, and uh, most relevant to today's episode, I'm really wanting to get a debate hosted on my show between a competent complementarian and an egalitarian. I've tried reaching out to a few folks from either side of that uh, divide, but have not gotten any response. Uh, but it does turn out that now, recently, I was told that I do have an egalitarian who may be willing to do the debate at least in a few months uh, so I'm looking now for a competent you know uh, uh, experienced complementarian uh, to do the debate if you're such a person please email me at theapologetics at hotmail.com and let me know uh, or if you'd recommend someone in particular please email or call them uh, and see if they'd be interested uh, and if they are, give them my contact information, or maybe CC me on the email that you send them. I, I'm really swamped lately at work and at home, and, and I can't be writing up and sending out a bunch of invitations. It's, it's hard enough to get these podcast episodes out. So I really need your help. Uh, any help you can give to get this important issue debated on my show would be really appreciated. Well, that's all I've got for this monologue. Next up in the promo rotation is Please Convince Me with Jim Wallace. Well... 
how about it get gone? Your show's almost gone. Get ready to jump into the jury box. It's time for the Please Convince Me podcast. The only apologetics podcast hosted by a cold case homicide detective. It's time for some clear thinking Christianity as we explore an evidential faith in Jesus Christ together. Here's the host of the Please Convince Me podcast, Jay Warner Wallace. If what I think is happening is happening, it better not be. I consider Jim Wallace a friend of mine. We've sort of been been developing a fledgling friendship over email and by phone. Uh, I really love the guy, and I love his ministry. I love his approach. He's he's really great. Uh, I would encourage you to check out his podcast. You can search for Please Convince Me in iTunes or the Zood Marketplace, or you can just go to pleaseconvinceme.com and uh, subscribe there. You should also check out the sister site, Answers for Atheists, which is geared specifically toward atheists seeking answers to their objections to Christianity, and you can find a link to that in my show notes or at pleaseconvinceme.com. Um, check it out. Uh, maybe let me know what you think. And Jim's a very accessible guy. If you have any questions for him or anything, as long as you're kind and respectful, uh, he'll probably respond to your emails. So um, I guess that's that. And with that, let's go ahead and move into the second half of the interview with egalitarian Dr. Philip Payne. She leads the way as I follow. And she Now, okay, so mutual submission. Dr. Hamilton agreed with you uh, that in Ephesians 5.22, the wife's submission to her husband is part of the previous verse's command to mutual submission. That reflects a pronoun that you talked about. But he pointed out that Paul goes on to give as examples of mutual submission, or at least he alleges, uh, as examples of mutual submission, relationships in which the nature of that mutual submission is not identical on each party's part. So, for example, after mentioning wives and husbands, Paul also goes on to mention children and parents as well as slaves and masters. And both of these kinds of relationships do appear to be ones in which Although there's a quality, there is functional subordination. And I'll admit that this is another response that he gave that at the time I found compelling. What do you make of that? Do you not think that that lends itself? Paul's going on and mentioned children and parents and slaves and masters. Do you not think that that lends itself to understanding the husband-wife relationship in a similar way? In Ephesians, mutual submission is grammatically linked only to the, the expression wives to your husbands, not to the later comments about parents and children or slaves or masters. So one is not justified in inventing a new meaning for the reciprocal pronoun that is not reciprocal by appealing to these much later comments in the next chapter. Mm. It troubles me that although Dr. Hamilton acknowledges that there is no dispute that submitting to one another provides the verb for wives to your husbands in verse 22, he refers to this, quote, so-called mutual submission and then defines mutual submission in a way that is not reciprocal, but functionally subordinate. In contrast, I accept the plain meaning of the text, because this submission is explained by the reciprocal pronoun. I understand it to be reciprocal, not, quote, so-called mutual submission, but real mutual submission. One of the most socially revolutionary and linguistically creative teachings of Paul is his command submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This combination of to place oneself under with the reciprocal pronoun defies social stratification. 
but it perfectly fits with Paul's view of mutuality in the body of Christ in Ephesians. 4.2, bear with one another in love. You are all members of one another. Verse 25, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other as in Christ God forgave you. Verse 32, every occurrence of one another in Paul's letters fits its identification in the standard New Testament Greek dictionary as the reciprocal pronoun with the English equivalents each other, one another, mutually. A reciprocal pronoun by definition is one expressing mutual action or relation. Mm. Neither it nor the standard classical Greek dictionary, Liddell Scott Jones, nor the Bauerdanker Art and Gingrich list any meaning that escapes the idea of reciprocity. Writers choose it only for situations in which there is a there's mutuality or reciprocity. Even George Knight III accepts mutual submission here, as he does as well in 1 Peter 4, 5, 4 to 5. And he argues that even about the slaves, it implies reciprocity between masters and slaves. Paul's vision of mutual submission within the body of Christ permeates his writings, such as, in humility considers other, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look out not only for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. This is modeled on Christ's voluntary subordination of his own interests. It's the attitude of serving one another after the pattern of Christ, who takes the role of a slave in washing the feet of the disciples as a model for them to follow. This is contrary to the pattern of the world, but it's perfectly in keeping with Paul's picture of how members of the body of Christ should interrelate. The Standard New Testament Dictionary defines hupotasso here of submission in the sense of voluntary yielding in love. The reasons Paul gives for wives to submit are reverence for Christ, Ephesians 5.21, Paul's command to love, and a desire to follow his example, Ephesians 5.1 and 2, Philippians 2.3 to 8, not to uphold functional subordination, Similarly, the reason Paul gives for wives to submit to their husbands in Titus 2.5 is so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, the reason Peter calls wives to submit to their husbands is not to uphold functional subordination, but, quote, so that their husbands will be won over by purity, reverence, gentleness, submission, and courageous good deeds. Peter's affirmation that wives and husbands are co-heirs of the grace of life implies their equal standing in Christ not their subordination. Okay, okay. But 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 I want to press you just a little bit further on this because I think that list some listeners uh, might get the impression that there's an element to the question that I asked that maybe you didn't answer. So here's the thing. I, 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 again, what you just gave was like drinking from a fire hose. You've given us tons of reasons uh, that should really cause us to consider uh, the kind of mutual submission that you're talking about between husbands and wives. However, this this question, Dr. Hamilton's point, was more surrounding the relationships that Paul goes on to mention between slaves and masters and children and, and, and their parents. So I'm just wondering, do you not... Is it your position that the mutual submission that Paul says should happen between husbands and wives isn't something that he intends to carry on in these other kinds of relationships? Grammatically, you can't tell. Grammatically, it must apply to wives and husbands. Mm -hmm. Grammatically and syntactically, whether it applies to the other things, 
you, you can't say. And what I hear Hamilton saying is, well, we have submitted one to another, wives to your husbands, and then after a long passage about wives and husbands, in the next chapter he goes on to parents and children, slaves and masters, and he just assumes that all of these are expounding submitting one to another. Yeah. But, uh, but there's and, nothing grammatically that requires I'll that. I'll tell you why I think he assumes that, is that there are some translations that make a paragraph break in the middle of Paul's sentence. And they make the paragraph break after submitting one to another. Hmm. And then they have a new then they have a series of new paragraphs, the first one, wives submit your husbands. And then it, it eventually moves on to these other things. If you break the sentence in the middle and have that as the last phrase of the previous paragraph, then you could say, oh well these then apply to the following things. But that's not that's not the grammatical structure, it's not the syntax that we have here. The syntax is a single sentence in which he says, submitting one to another in the fear of Christ, wives to your husbands. And that's the only element which is linked to submitting to one another. Okay. They're not linked to it grammatically or syntactically. Okay. And the problem is, what he's doing is saying we have a re reciprocal pronoun here, but it doesn't, it's not reciprocal. It's not back and forth, it's only one way and they're different in the different ways. And I think when you take a word which is as standard as the reciprocal pronoun and say it's not reciprocal, and so he calls it so-called mutual submission, he's redefining a Greek word based on an arbitrary application of that to the next two passages, saying they are defining what it means, but it's not linked to those things. Yeah. So, so it's not as if the text gives us any reason to believe that Imagine a bulleted, imagine a numbered list or a bulleted list, and you've got the the numeric, the the Greek, the Roman numeral one, and uh, it's mutual submission, and then under that you have categories A, women and uh, husbands and wives, B, slaves and masters, three, children and parents. No, you're saying that this mutual submission is part of the husbands and wives and isn't intended. There's nothing in the grammar or the syntax that would that suggests that this mutual submission is carried on to the other examples. Is that what Precisely. you're saying? Yeah. Precisely. And I can tell you why this happened. In the early church, uh, they used the sec section about husband and wives uh, as a special reading. Yeah. Uh, there are lectionary readings. In fact, many of our early manuscripts are actually lectionaries. And they have broken down the text to things that are appropriate for things like weddings. And because... In a wedding, the stuff about husband and wife is particularly appropriate. They broke Paul's sentence and then added the verb uh, submit, wives submit to your husbands, and then you have this tradition, once that became common, all the manuscripts stuck it in. Mm. So all the early manuscripts do not have the verb submit in wives submit to your husbands. All the later ones do. The fact that all the later ones do and none revert to the other form shows that once it's in there, no one's ever going to take it out. So it's not as though those original oldest manuscripts all took it out. 
because no other, if that were the case, that others later would have done the same. Hmm. Uh, it was added later, but it was added in order to use the passage in a lectionary reading. Unfortunately, uh, those English translations which use the later text as the basis for making their paragraph breaks, they break up the logical flow of Paul's sentence so that one sentence is split into two paragraphs and the verb for the second paragraph is in the previous paragraph. Grammatically, uh, it's butchery. It sounds like it. <laughs> yeah, okay. Now, Dr. Hamilton thinks that your argument for mutual submission from here in Ephesians 5 disregards some of the context. Is that true? Do you think that you're, you know, I think I mentioned this again or earlier in the podcast, do you think that you're sort of fighting the context of the passage in order to shoehorn egalitarianism into the passage, or, or are there additional contextual factors that maybe you haven't already mentioned that actually favor your view? Dr. Hamilton did not identify a single word or idea in the text or its context that I disregarded. I don't see how the 39 years I've taken examining the text and context of this and the other biblical passages about man and woman can be fairly described as disregarding the rest of the context. I believe my exegesis treats fairly this entire text, including every word of it and all of its grammatical and syntactical features. It was the text itself, remember, that forced me to give up what I was reluctant to give up, what I formerly believed was my authority as head of my wife. I certainly do not regard the reciprocal pronoun in 521. I don't disregard the reciprocal pronoun in 521, although Hamilton refers to this as so-called mutual submission. And this sounds like disregarding to me. Nor do, I, nor do I disregard Paul's own explanation of what he means by head in 523 using apposition. Paul explains, Christ, head of the church, he, savior of the body. Robertson's grammar identifies this in Ephesians 523 as emphatic apposition. J. Armitage Robinson explains, this last clause is added to interpret the special sense in which Christ is here called the head of the church. Christ is the head of the church as being himself the savior of the body. It is the function of the head to plan the safety of the body, to secure it from danger, and to provide for its welfare. In this highest sense, this function is fulfilled by Christ for the church. In a lower sense, it's fulfilled by the husband for the wife. The apostle interpreted the headship of Christ by insertion of the clause, being himself the savior of the body. Apposition is the placing of a word or expression besides another so that the second explains and has the same grammatical construction as the first. In this case, apposition is abundantly clear since the grammatical construction of the parallel, parallel expressions exactly match subject, descriptor, genitive article, descriptor's object in the genitive. Christ, head of the church, he, savior of the body. There is no question that he is equivalent in meaning to Christ, yes. and that of the church is equivalent in meaning to of the body. Paul places savior in apposition to head, showing that he intends head to be understood as equivalent in meaning to savior. Recognizing this apposition is crucial in interpreting head, since apart from this explanation, it would not be clear what Paul meant by head. The appositional structure is evident, for instance, in the, the American Standard Version. 
Christ also is head of the church, being himself the savior of the body. In the New American Standard, Christ also is head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. In Weymouth, Christ also is head of the church, himself the savior of the body. And Amplified, Christ is head of the church, himself the savior of his body. This and Philippians 2.20 are Paul's only uses of savior prior to the pastoral epistles. And neither has a definite article. Consequently, Savior is clearly descriptive, not a title, Hmm. and so should not be capitalized. If Paul had intended to convey head in the sense of authority, he should have used an appositional phrase like, he the authority of the body. But instead he explained it with Savior. His subsequent description of Christ's relationship to to his body, the church, does not state anything about Christ's authority either but says that Christ loved and gave himself for the church to make her holy, cleansed without sin and blameless, feeding and caring for her. These are his actions as Savior. Paul calls the husband to imitate Christ in in these respects in relation to his wife, not to assume authority over her. Yeah, okay. So, yeah, there's definitely... Uh, important elements of the context that it sounds like you're taking into consideration considerably more than uh, than uh, many complementarians. Uh, but but let's let's move on now again from mutual submission this time to Paul's instructions to Timothy. Uh, Dr. Hamilton stated that unlike Titus 1:10, where Paul mentions people being deceived as a basis for instructions, that's not what Paul does in 1 Timothy 2:12's restriction on women teaching. He states that this is not because these women uh, are adopting false teachings or because these women are propagating heresy or something like. Like that. How, how would you respond to that? This is not true. Paul's explanation for his restriction on women teaching in 1 Timothy 2.12 explicitly states, for the woman was thoroughly deceived. This explains Paul's only imperative in the passage, let the women learn, namely to overcome their deception. Women's deception makes perfect sense as an argument for limiting women assuming authority on their own to teach men in Ephesus. Their deception was threatening the fall of the church, just as Eve's deception led to the fall in Eden. 1 Timothy 5.15 explicitly states that some younger widows, quote, have already turned aside to follow Satan. And 5.13 says they were going about from house to house, likely referring to house churches, saying things they ought not. Gordon Fee argues that the translation gossips is without merit, and the term regularly refers to foolish philosophy, which is a characteristic of the false teaching in Ephesus. Paul summarizes the false teaching in 4.7 as old wives' tales. As my book shows in detail, Paul repeatedly describes women in Ephesus using identical or similar expressions to what he uses to describe the false teachers. This entire letter is introduced as a response to false teachings, and almost every sentence of the letter is related to the issues raised in the letter's introductory paragraph about the false teaching. Paul's only imperative in the passage, let the women learn, is essential to overcome their deception. The widespread deception of women by the false teachers in Ephesus made such seizing of of unauthorized teaching authority particularly dangerous for the church. Okay. All right. Well, but Dr. Hamilton went on to argue 
that rather than as a means to counter false teachers targeting women in a local area, the reason for the limitation on women teaching is very similar, indeed almost exactly the same thing as the reason that Paul gives uh, in 1 Corinthians 11's for head covering rule. Hold on. I, I'm going to have to redo <laughs> This is a long question. Hold on. Let me redo this. Dr. Hamilton went on to argue, though, that Rather than as a means to counter false teachers targeting women in a local area, the reason for the limitation on women teaching is very similar, almost exactly the same thing, as the reason that, as the reason that Paul gives in 1 Corinthians 11's uh, head covering rule for women in 11.8, where it says, for man was not made from a woman, but woman from man. That is to say, he sees Paul's instructions to Timothy as being rooted in the created order rather than on any local problem facing the congregations over which Timothy was steward. So what do you make of this? I agree with Dr. Hamilton that these passages use the same argument, but I disagree with him what that argument is. Hmm. He asserts, without citing any evidence, the First Corinthians 11 refers to an order of creation, establishing a hierarchy of authority of males over females. This is not taught in Genesis, nor is it taught in First Corinthians 11. The only reference to authority in First Corinthians 11 is Paul's affirmation in verse 10 that woman ought to have authority over her own head. So his authority interpretation does not fit the passage. Hamilton's hierarchical interpretation is contradicted, moreover, by verses 11 to 12. However, and this word always points to, to Paul's main concern, woman is not separate from man, nor is man separate from woman in the Lord. The common translation independent is not supported by major Greek dictionaries. Paul insists that in Christ there is no separation between man and woman in the context of leading worship in church. This passage affirms that both men and women can pray, the vertical dimension of worship, and prophesy, the horizontal dimension of worship. But if woman was made from man, is not affirming a hierarchy of authority based on the order of creation, what is it teaching? In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul begins his argument by asserting fundamental source relations in verse 3. First, Christ is the source of every man. Next, the man, namely Adam, is the source of woman. He reinforces this by explicitly stating that woman was made from man in verse 8, which is also necessarily implied in verse 9. It is reiterated in verse 12, woman is from man, and man comes through woman. Mm. The reason for this repeated focus on source is the common understanding that one owes respect to one source. Men, through their head coverings, were disrespecting Christ, their source. Women, through uncovering their heads, were disrespecting their husbands. Verses 14 to 15 explain the disgraceful head coverings as hair. Men's long effeminate hair disrespected the way Christ made them as men. Women's hair is given as, her cover, as a covering. To let her hair down, loosed in public, symbolized her sexual freedom, repudiating her marriage vows and disrespecting her husband. Verse 12 makes it clear that Paul's argument that woman should respect man since man was the source of woman is counterbalanced by man's corresponding obligation to respect woman. Quote, For as woman is from man, so also man is born through woman, and all this is from God. Mm. 
Paul explicitly argues that both the woman and the man should do things that show respect to the other sex, since the other sex is their source. Similarly, Paul prohibits women from seizing authority to teach men in 1 Timothy 2.12, because that is disrespectful to men. Instead, as verse 13 argues, woman should show respect to man because woman had her source in man whom God created first. It was disrespectful to men for women to repudiate their marriage vows by letting their hair down loose in Corinth. It was dis disrespectful to men for women to seize authority to teach men in Ephesus. In both passages, Paul repudiates this disrespect to men and appeals in support of his ruling that women should show respect to men since man is the source of woman. Okay. But, okay, so now in this passage in, in Timothy, there's this question about the word translated uh, exercise authority. And Dr. Hamilton had claimed that Andreas Kostenberger's exhaustive study has shown definitively that if to teach is positive in meaning, then to exercise authority is, has also got to be positive. And since Paul doesn't call the teaching here false, as he does elsewhere in his epistles, uh, that this must refer to positive teaching, and thus to exercise authority must likewise carry a positive meaning rather than, as, as you've suggested, to assume or usurp authority. So, so how, how, how do you respond to this line of reasoning? Hamilton uses the words exhaustive and definitive to end the discussion before it's begun. But if we look at the evidence carefully, we see that Baldwin does not agree with either Kostenberger or Schreiner on the meaning of the word. Mm. I strongly disagree with Kostenberger's argument and find it full of holes. But it's important to address, so please bear with me as I dissect it for you. Okay. Not only is Kostenberger's argument not exhaustive, it misunderstands crucial issues in this passage. His five-point argument is unconvincing at each point, yet all five would have to be convincing for Kostenberger's argument to be convincing. Number one, to teach is not inherently positive in the pastoral epistles, as is evident in Titus 1.11. They are ruining whole households by teaching things they ought not. Mm. This proves that the word teach does not always refer to authoritative instruction in the pastoral epistles, and suggests that teaching can occur in households as well as in broader gatherings of the church. Hamilton was incorrect to state, if the content is negative, the pastoral epistles always call it false teaching. Number two, since there is not a clear, a single clear instance of authentic meaning to exercise authority until 300 years after Paul, it's anachronistic to read this meaning back into 1 Timothy 2.12. The standard New Testament Greek dictionary does not list to have authority or to exercise authority as possible meanings for authentic in Paul's day. Thus, it is not surprising when you ask Dr. Hamilton for an example of authentic meaning exercise authority, anywhere near Paul's time, he was unable to cite even one. Number three, Paul is prohibiting this so he must have regarded it in context as negative, not positive, contrary to Kostenberger's allegation. Number four, Kostenberger alleges that the construction negated finite verb plus infinitive plus ude, which is the conjunction, plus infinitive in every instance yields the pattern 
positive, positive, or negative, negative. I found no evidence against this. This should now be considered as an assured result of biblical scholarship. Hmm. My New Testament Studies article about this conjunction identifies seven instances of this pattern that Kostenberger cites, <laughs> where one infinitive has positive connotations and the other has negative connotations, as well as other cases where it joins other forms of verbs or nouns, one with positive connotations, the other with negative connotations. For instance, in Galatians 3.28, Uded joins slave and free, in a context where Paul makes it clear that he regards freedom positively and slavery negatively. Hmm. Galatians 4.7, you are no longer a slave. Right. Number five, Kostenberger's assertion that Paul must have regarded both the elements joined by the coordinating conjunction Uded as positive or both negative presupposes that Paul is conveying two ideas, not one. Mm. Understanding this as an example of Paul's typical use of Ude conveying one idea changes everything, since they together convey a message, not separately. In these cases, it's the combination of the two elements that Paul viewed positively or negatively, not the two items in isolation from from each other. Mm. Consequently, it's inappropriate to, to speak of whether Paul viewed them separately as positive or negative in these cases. Thus, even though Kostenberger says he has never denied that Uda may join two expressions to convey a single idea, the very structure of his argument completely disregards this, the central point of my New Testament studies article, analyzing every instance of Paul's use of Uda. Paul typically uses the conjunction Udea to convey a single idea, as do the two closest syntactical parallels to 1 Timothy 2.12. In the overwhelming majority of Paul's and the New Testament uses of this conjunction between not and but, this conjunction joins two expressions to convey a single idea in sharp contrast to the following but statement. Furthermore, the earliest known commentary on 1 Timothy 2.12, Origins, treats it as a single prohibition. Blomberg supports this by, ident by identifying 11 other instances in this chapter where pairs of complementary expressions convey main points. Understood as a single prohibition, 1 Timothy 2.12 conveys, I am not permitting a woman to teach and in combination with this to assume authority over a man. The only established category of this con conjunction's usage in the entire Pauline corpus that makes sense of this passage joins conceptually different expressions to convey a single idea. Hmm. There is not a single undisputed parallel in any of the letters attributed to Paul that supports reading 1 Timothy 2.12 as two separate prohibitions which would be required for this verse to prohibit both women teaching and women having authority over men. Consequently, this Uda construction makes best sense as a single prohibition of women teaching with self-assumed authority over a man. This understanding fits the text and its context lexically, 
syntactically, grammatically, stylistically, and theologically. This single specific restriction perfectly fits the danger of false teaching by women in Ephesus. It does not contradict Paul's and the pastoral epistles' affirmations of women teaching, nor does it prohibit women such as Priscilla from teaching men as long as their authority is properly delegated, not self-assumed. Remember that according to Acts 18, Priscilla instructed Apollos in this same city, Ephesus, to which this prohibition is given. And Paul greets her in 1 Timothy 4, in uh, uh, 2 Timothy 4, 9, indicating that she was still in Ephesus then. All this evidence makes a very strong case that 1 Timothy 2.12 specifically prohibit, prohibits women from assuming for themselves authority to teach men. Paul's words and syntax do not justify reading into it the universal prohibition of women teaching men or exercising authority over men that Kostenberger and Hamilton allege. Okay. Uh, now, in, in giving that answer, another fire hose that we're drinking from, uh, and you mentioned this earlier as well, you noted that Dr. Hamilton hasn't been able to provide any examples in which uh, this Greek word uh, that, that's often translated to exercise authority actually means that, uh, rather than, as you've mentioned, assume or take authority not already properly held. So, so then... Why, why do you think that the meaning of this word is so significant? Oh, it's absolutely crucial to Dr. Hamilton's position that 1 Timothy 2.12 prohibit all women of all times from teaching or having authority over a man. This is the exegetical key that he uses to interpret every other statement in the Bible about women. And 1 Timothy 2.12 is the only place in the Bible that might be translated as a prohibition of women having authority over a man. Dr. Hamilton insists that whatever women in the Bible did, judge, prophesy, teach, explain more accurately, announce Jesus' resurrection ascension, or whatever position they held, apostle, deacon, overseer, prophetess, fellow worker, could not have included teaching or having authority over men. If he read my book with comprehension, he would have been made aware that the first clear instance where authentic means exercise authority, is around 370 A.D., three centuries after Paul, in St. Basil's letters, number 69, line 45, he, the bishop of Rome, may himself exercise full authority in this matter, selecting men capable of enduring the hardships of a journey. The word that Paul uses elsewhere when he writes about authority, exousia, is a different and unrelated word. Okay, but what about Dr. Hamilton's appeal to Baldwin, uh, whose essay on the word meaning have authority is one that Dr. Hamilton called exhaustive and definitive, kind of like he did another one. How do you respond to Baldwin's analysis of the word? Baldwin concludes that his study of Alethenteo, quote, narrows down the range of meaning that might be appropriate in 1 Timothy 2.12 to four possible meanings. Number one, to control or dominate. Number two, to compel or influence. Number three, to assume authority, authority over. And number four, to flout the authority of. Baldwin says that Schreiner will identify which best fits 1 Timothy 2.12. Schreiner, however, adopts none of these four, but rather exercise authority over. Thus, not even the study that Hamilton praises 
identifies <laughs> to have authority as a possible meaning of authenticity in Paul's day. Hamilton praised Baldwin, but apparently did not read him with comprehension. And the same for Schreiner and the same for Kostenberger. For Hamilton repeatedly asserted, it seems like about 20 times in your two podcasts, that 1 Timothy 2.12 does not permit a woman to exercise authority over a man or to have authority over a man. Hamilton repeatedly accuses me of word study fallacy, but it is he who is ignoring the results of word studies. Even this word study he praises, unless they bolster his view. Mm. It's significant that the NIV 2011 Revision Committee, chaired by Doug Moo, whom Hamilton also defends, after evaluating the evidence I presented to Moo, changed the NIV translation from have authority to assume authority. Doug Moo kindly phoned me to let me know the committee had agreed on the translation, assume authority. Which is significant considering that Doug Moo is a prominent complementarian. <laughs> right. Yeah. In other words, the evidence for the meaning, assume authority, is overwhelming. Sure. Now, when I had asked Dr. Hamilton if there's anything in the text of 1 Timothy 3 that qualifies only men as leaders uh, to the exclusion of women, he said that the words are masculine in masculine forms. Does the use of masculine words show that Paul excluded women from the office of overseer or elder? No, it does not. Just as in Hebrew, when referring to a group of individuals, the masculine as prior gender includes the feminine. Gesenius mm. Hebrew Grammar, uh, section 122 and 132d. So also in Greek, the masculine was used by convention when referring to a body of people that included men. It does not exclude females, as the inclusion of male and female describing, you are all one, here one is masculine, demands in Galatians 3.28. Mm -hmm. By Greek convention, masculine grammatical forms and terms like anthropos, person, man, and adelphoi, brothers or brothers and sisters, as Bauer, Denker, Arndt, and Gingrich defines it, are commonly used when both men and women are in view. Thus, for example, in, in 1 Corinthians 7.24, each should not be translated each man, as the NIV did, but corrected in the NIV 2010, to brothers and sisters, each person. None of the words that are grammatically masculine in, in gender in 1 Timothy 3, 1 to 13, and Titus 1, 5 to 9, specifies that only men are in view. The fact that Hamilton acknowledges that women may be deacons proves that this is irrelevant, since many of the same <laughs> masculine gender terms describe deacons as well as overseers. Mm. Since Hamilton acknowledges that women can be deacons according to 1 Timothy 3, the masculine pronouns describing deacons in 1 Timothy 3 must not exclude women from being deacons. Furthermore, the subject of both 1 Timothy 3.1 and Titus 1.6 is introduced by tis, which means anyone or whoever. Yeah, I, I did ask him, so not being a Greek scholar myself, I did ask him if tis was... Uh, masculine, and I think that he's, if I recall, and you correct me if I'm wrong, he said that it was, but your point is that masculine pro, masculine words don't necessarily indicate, don't necessarily exclude women. Or am I wrong about this? Oh, you're definitely right. That uh, these sorts of masculine forms have no implication that only men are in view. 
Right. And, and, and we, in the last time I interviewed you, we talked about, I think, the, uh, the one-woman-man phrase that was either here and Titus. Yeah. Uh, okay, well, let, let's move on again. To, to probably to turn to another fire hose to drink from. This time, the passage in Corinthians in which you argue that verses 34 and 35 are scribal interpolations. Uh, Dr. Hamilton said that you're inventing imaginary manuscripts that lack these verses and that you have no real evidence that the original lacked them. He even suggested that there's practically universal attestation to these verses being an original. Is that is that the case? I say to everyone listening to this podcast, you can look up the manuscripts yourself. Don't take my word for it. Various important early manuscripts give strong evidence that 1 Corinthians 14, 34-35 was not in the original body text of this letter. Compare what I say to pictures from manuscripts, and you can see for yourself. If I were inventing imaginary manuscripts, why did the senior paleographer at the Vatican, Paul Canar, jointly publish our findings, first in Novum Testamentum, and recently in the most important collection of essays ever published about Codex Vaticanus B, Le Manuscript B de la Bible? Why did the editors of New Testament Studies repeatedly, Novum Testamentum, the Journal of the Study of the New Testament, and Zondervan, all after expert peer review, publish my studies? Dr. Hamilton did state, quote, there is universal attestation to these verses being in Paul's original letter to the Corinthians. But this is not true. There's a great deal of attestation that these verses were not in Paul's original letter to the Corinthians. Man and woman, one in Christ, lists seven external attestations plus nine internal attestations of this. For instance, there's a dystigma obelisk symbol of an interpolation at the interface of 1 Corinthians 14, 33, and 34 in our oldest Greek Bible, Codex Vaticanus, from the first half of the 300s. In every one of the eight dystigma obelisk instances in this manuscript, it occurs at the exact location of a widely acknowledged multi-word interpolation cited in the standard text of the Greek New Testament. The eight dystigma obelisk symbols are properly regarded as Codex Vaticanus manuscript evidence that the multi-word widely acknowledged interpolations at these points in the text are properly regarded as later editions, including 1 Corinthians 14, 34-35. Furthermore, Bishop Victor of Capua puts a symbol to read replacement text after verse 33 from the bottom margin, which text omits verses 34 to 35 and reads directly from verse 36 to the end of the chapter. Hmm. That's very intriguing stuff. Uh, now, continuing to regard this passage, though, Dr. Hamilton said that it's your view that what he called gender bigot scribes inserted these verses into the text of Paul's letters. Is that your view? And, and even if you didn't use the phrase gender bigot or the word bigot at all, do you think that it was, in fact, because of their unbiblical view of women in ministry that scribes inserted these verses? A search of my electronic edition of Man and Woman, One in Christ, shows there is no reference in it to gender bigot scribes or even the word bigot. He attributes to me something my writing never affirmed. I do not know who added these verses, why or when. Paul's secretary could have written them in the margin next to, if anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, let him know that what I write is the Lord's command as a summary of the false prophecy Paul had in mind. I doubt that a scribe in the sense of a copyist added them or moved them, since that is not what copyists did. Not a single manuscript of any of Paul's letters 
has any block of text this large moved this far without an obvious reason. And as far as I know, there's only one passage where that happened. I think it's most likely that someone reading an early copy of this letter, perhaps the first copy of Paul's collected letters, since it would have been the favored manuscript for subsequent copies of Paul's letters, was troubled by this passage's encouragement that everyone teach and prophesy, and wrote these words in the margin. Mm. Perhaps that person wanted to keep this passage from appearing to contradict his understanding, I would say misunderstanding, of 1 Timothy 2.12, influenced by the conventional view at that time that women should be silent in public gatherings. The key to understanding these verses is evident in the earliest manuscripts of them. The fundamental question in determining the original text of Scripture is known as Bengal's first principle. It states, the text that best explains the emergence of all other text is most likely the original. Mm. These verses follow verse 40 in Western text-type manuscripts, but in other manuscripts they follow verse 33. There are only three reasonable possibilities for their original location. After verse 33, after verse 40, or in the margin. Did New Testament scribes in copying manuscripts move large blocks of text this far without an obvious reason? No, they did not. There's not a single manuscript of any passage of comparable length in any of Paul's letters that's been moved this far without an obvious reason. It would have been totally out of character and convention for a scribe to move these verses from after verse 33 to after verse 40, or vice versa. It was scribal custom, however, to write omitted text in the margin and for scribes to copy text they found in the margin into the body text where they thought it fit best. Similarly, any secretary retyping an edited letter will move marginal notes into the body of the letter. Transcriptional probability, therefore, argues that someone first wrote that women be silent in the churches in the margin of a manuscript and later copyists inserted it either after verse 33 or after verse 40. Hmm. After all, common sense demands that something customary is more likely to occur than something so extraordinary that no other instance is known. Yeah. As marginal text, its meaning is not constrained by its context. Consequently, its purpose is harder to determine. Specifically, one cannot know if this text in the margin is something Paul affirms or denies. Perhaps it identifies the false prophecy Paul had in mind in his adjacent reference to one who thinks he is a prophet. It is doubtful Paul himself penned these verses since a typical margin would not have room for this much text in his large handwriting. Hmm. See Galatians 6.11. 2 Thessalonians 3.17. One can only conjecture who wrote it in the margin, why, and when. Therefore, this command that women be silent in the church should not be used to establish theology or church practice. Some may become alarmed at this prospect of taking verses out of the Bible, thinking this may undermine faith in the inerrancy of the original autographs. However, this concern is unfounded. This is a unique case 
the only passage in Paul's letters where such a large block of text occurs in locations so far away with no adequate explanation if it was originally in the body text. Its origin as marginal text is the only natural explanation of the manuscript evidence. Consequently, this key reason to regard it as marginal text does not support the marginal status, much less the exclusion of any other passage of scripture. Yeah. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. It definitely gives us something to chew on and, and, and research more. But Dr. Hamilton did make the claim that from his perspective, you're rejecting the interpretation that makes good sense of the passage in its context. He thinks his interpretation, that Paul is prohibiting women from judging whether prophecies are really from God, better fits the context and doesn't exclude any other form of speech such as prayer and prophecy. What, what do you think? I argue that my interpretation of these verses makes far more sense than Hamilton's, both of the natural meaning of all its words and the natural flow of its words in its context. Key problems with the weighing or judging, as the word is commonly translated, since it's a compound of the word judge between interpretation, include the following nine problems. Number one, the specific example of silence identified in verse 35, mentions nothing about weighing or judging prophecy. Yet Hamilton's interpretation asserts that the only thing these two verses prohibit is weighing prophecies, and that it does not restrict any other kind of speech. If that were true, it would not restrict women who desire to learn from asking questions in church as long as the question did not pass judgment on a prophecy. In other words, Paul's interpretation does that Hamilton's interpretation does not prohibit the normal meaning of the very thing that verse 35 specifically does prohibit, namely wives out of a desire to learn asking questions. Verse 35 explicitly states, if they want to learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home, for it's a disgrace for a woman to speak in church. Hamilton's interpretation permits the very thing that verse 35 prohibits. Note that verse 35 does not state if they want to weigh or judge a prophecy, but if they want to learn. Asking a question out of a desire to learn is putting oneself under another in order to learn from them. Weighing or judging someone else's words is putting oneself over another by judging their words. Yeah. Number two. Verse 35 is clearly giving an example of prohibited speech that is not exhaustive. Silence would be far more necessary if anyone did not want to learn. And it would be assumed a fortiori that if married women must be silent, then of course younger women must also be silent in church. Number three, the reason given for prohibiting a wife asking a question out of a desire to learn quote, for it is a disgrace for a woman to speak in church, is far broader than the particular example given in verse 35. 35a apparently answers the anticipated question to verse 34's twice-repeated blanket command, let women in the churches be silent, for they are not permitted to speak. The natural objection is, if women can't speak, how can they learn answers to their questions? 
verse 35 is apparently added to verse 34 to make it clear that not even the least controversial speech done out of desire to learn by a respected woman a wife is permitted. The reason for the third time is stated as an absolute, for it is a disgrace for a woman to speak in church. Fourth objection. Specific prohibitions require specific modifiers. Elsewhere in this chapter, any specific sense of to speak, such as to speak in tongues, is always specified. There is no way Paul's readers could have known he was prohibiting only the judging of prophecy unless he made this sense specific. And none of the three statements in verses 34 to 35 requiring silence or prohibiting speech limits the speech prohibited. Each is absolute with no qualifier. Let women in the churches be silent. They are not permitted to speak. It is a disgrace for a woman to speak in church. Verse 35's concluding prohibition of the original encompassing to speak shows that the writer did not intend to narrow the prohibition from speaking to asking questions. Number five, reiteration of the prohibition three times maximizes its demand. Delling explains that in the Greek and Hellenistic Roman world, threefold utterances of a word, expression, or sentence give it full validity and power. Three is characterized by fullness and solidity. Threefold repetition commonly reinforces New Testament messages. Consequently, the threefold repetition, calling for the silence of women without qualification in 1 Corinthians 14, 34-5, must be given its full validity and power, namely, that in the churches, women must not speak, period. Hmm. This absolute meaning would be obvious to readers throughout antiquity. For example, Chrysostom, in his homily on this passage, states, here Paul, quote, sews up their mouths, and if this be so in respect of husbands, much more in respect of teachers and fathers in the general assembly of the church. Now, if they ought not to ask questions, much more is their speaking at pleasure contrary to law. Hmm. Modern attempts to limit 34 to 35's threefold prohibition are so anachronistic, they would strike first century readers as obvious distortions of the writer's clear intent. Origen shows awareness of the tension with Paul's various statements that all may prophesy, but he is forced by the words of these two verses to condemn speech by women in church. He writes, For you may all prophesy one by one. There would have been an abundance of those speaking and giving instruction. Therefore the apostle permits all to speak in the church. He all but goes on to permit women to speak, except he goes on to say that women keep silent in the churches. Mm. And then he cites those two verses in full. For, as all were speaking and were empowered to speak, if revelation is given to them, it states, let women be silent in the churches. Even if she speaks marvelous and holy things, it is shameful for a woman to speak in church, simply because it comes from the mouth of a woman. For a woman to speak forth in church brings her under shame and the condemnation of the whole church. Unquote. Number six. No lexicon or Pauline usage supports to speak, meaning to a meaning limited to to weigh or to judge. Nor does its reiteration with the similarly unqualified expressions remain silent and it is disgraceful for women to speak in church. Number seven, for 1,900 years, there is no evidence that this interpretation ever occurred to anyone. 
<laughs> as far as I've been able to discover, W. Klein in 1961 was the very first person to come up with the idea that these verses prohibit only the questioning of prophecy. In the Australian Theological Review, 1962, page 8, none of the church fathers leave us any inkling of this idea. Number 8, in any event, since prophecies can conflict, and this is implied in verse 29, the prophesying that Dr. Hamilton acknowledges is permitted to women in 1 Corinthians 11 entails at least as much authority as that exercised by those questioning the prophecies. So his interpretation does not resolve the conflict with his whole questionable interpretation of 1 Timothy 2.12. Number nine, since women are permitted to prophesy, it is natural that they should be included in the others who weigh prophecy in 1429, especially since the gifts are for all, according to verses 7 and 11. Okay, so yeah, these are some good challenges, and, and I'll be looking forward to his and the and, and uh, his response and that from other complementarians as well. It, it sounds to me like uh, not only is his interpre- interpretation of verses 30 and 30, 34 and 35 uh, countered by all of these points, but also uh, what is the best interpretation of those verses contradicts the, the text that we know Paul actually wrote, and further giving evidence that it's a, an interpolation. Is that is that fair? Yeah, there, there is the possibility that Paul included this as an afterthought in the margin uh, that probably his secretary could have written as a quotation of the false prophecy that he says, if anyone thinks he's prophet or spiritual, let him know that what I write to you is the Lord's command, which could imply that someone there gave a false prophecy that contradicted Paul's belief. And the content of that prophecy might be these two verses. In that case, it could have been in the original letter that was sent to Ephesus with Paul's approval. But the content of those two verses then would not be approving let women keep silence, but condemning it as a false prophecy. Okay. Now, I think that is a reasonable possibility and it answers most of the evidence. Uh, it does not answer some of the evidence. Uh, for instance, if the diastigmae obolus here, as in every other occurrence in Codex Vaticanus, marks an interpolation, namely a later edition, then that uh, person writing uh, this diastigmae obolus in Codex Vaticanus regarded it as a later edition. Now that doesn't prove it was a later edition, but it's evidence that supports the later edition as opposed to the earlier edition. Okay. All right, but is there anything more that you could say about Dr. Hamilton's claim that verses 34 and 35 refer back to verse 29 in which he says, let two or three prophets speak and let the others pass judgment? There are only four words in verse 29b that refer to judging the prophecies. Kai hoi aloi diakronetosan, and the others should weigh carefully what the prophets say. On the view Hamilton espouses, as described in the book he recommends, Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, this verse is elaborated in verses 30 to 33, and verse 29b is elaborated in verses 34 to 35. Mm. Verses 30 to 33, however, 
must not elaborate 29a. Since 31a's all may prophesy contradicts verse 29a's limitation to two or three prophets speaking. This indicates instead that verses 30 to 32 introduce something other than what verse 29 addresses. Mm. Furthermore, the four words about judging prophecies are not only too far from 34 to 35 for this association to be apparent, they're in separate paragraphs, since verse 33 concludes the preceding section in all early manuscripts. Verses 34 and 35 are a unit in all of the early manuscripts, and in every Western text type manuscript, they occur together after verse 40. This is a prime example of how Dr. Hamilton repeatedly imposes his dubious interpretation of 1 Timothy 2.12 on texts written earlier. He identifies the reason of 1 Corinthians 14.34-35, quote, so that the women won't be perceived as, here it is, exercising authority over or instructing men. They are to be silent at the time weighing prophecy. Hmm. Okay. Uh, now, you mentioned a moment ago about uh, the verses 34 and 35 serving as a unit, and, and I think that I had asked Dr. Hamilton a little bit about that. Uh, you noted that Dr. Hamilton, following the ESV, includes 33b as a beginning of the sentence that continues in the, in 34 so it would read so it would read it would read like this as in all the churches of the saints the women should keep silent in the churches but you refer to 1434 to 35 as a unit you just did so why don't you regard 14 uh, verse 33b as part of the sentence that continues in verse 34 and what's the significance of it in all my investigation of manuscripts of this passage and this includes all of the earliest manuscripts i've never seen any manuscript that treats 1433b as part of the sentence beginning at 1434. It is obvious by its placement of only verses 34 to 35 after verse 40 that the entire Western text type tradition regarded 33b as separate from 34 to 35. Furthermore, the redundancy of, as in all the churches of the saints, that women keep silent in the churches is unlike Paul's typical writing style. And is the significance of this that, do you think that the attempt to attach 33b to the beginning of 34 is, is an attempt to um, try to make sense contextually of these verses that seem to be an interpolation? I mean, do, do, you think that they're, do you think that they're attaching to 33 in the hopes that they can try to find somewhere where it makes sense in the passage? Uh, I don't I don't know what their reason for that is. I can tell you what my reason was hmm. because for a long time I tried to argue that those that 33b connected to 34 and 35. Right. My reasoning was that if it says as in all the churches of the saints that women keep silent in the churches, then the first clause as in all the churches of the saints could qualify the command. Hmm. Okay, in other words, there's some kind of custom or customs in the churches for women to be silent. And as in this custom, as in all the churches of the saints, in that sense, let them be silent. This would be a wonderful solution because it would indicate that something other than total silence is what's being regarded here. It's whatever the custom in the churches was, that's what they're supposed to keep. Mm. And the beauty of it is, 
since we don't know what the custom was, we don't have to obey it. <laughs> it resolves the problem. Uh, however, when I started reading the manuscripts, every manuscript of this passage uh, keeps 34 and 35 as separate. 33 is, uh, B is not joined to it in any manuscript from P46 all the way on. And then, like you say, it would be rather, it would seem to be rather redundant to say, as in all the churches of the saints, let women keep silent in the churches. It doesn't seem right. to make much sense to me. Usually the translations that do that change the wording and say, as in all the congregations of the saints, let women keep silence in the churches. Or as in all the assemblies, let women keep silent in the churches. They, they change the word to hide the redundancy. Yeah. But in Greek, it's perfect redundancy. Okay. All right, well, this has been a ton of things to, to go and research further and to, and to digest. Uh, I think that um, this is probably going to end up being a three-episode interview. Um, so, you know, hope, hopefully there's a lot that we can take away from this and, and, and research more. Now, but but let's begin to wrap up, okay? So when I interviewed Dr. Hamilton, he encouraged my listeners to just read the Bible and accept what it says about men and women in the home and in the church. What impressed me about your case was how seriously it appears to take the biblical text as well. And, and I guess, in other words, what I'm saying is you also seem to want us to just read the Bible and accept what it says. So why do you think it is that you and Dr. Hamilton both want us to just read the Bible and yet come to such radically different conclusions? In, in what ways do you think that maybe your approach to the Bible is different from or similar to Dr. Hamilton's? Well, first of all, we agree that God's Word, the Bible, has final authority. And in contrast to liberal scholarship, we agree that the Bible's message is consistent, not self-contradictory. In our affirmation of the authority of Scripture, however, we appear to differ in one key respect. I explicitly affirm the inerrancy of the original autographs, namely the text as originally inspired by the Holy Spirit, in the original language of Scripture. This, of course, demands study to determine as precisely as possible the text that was originally inspired by God. I suspect that Dr. Hamilton would agree with me in theory regarding this hmm. and each of the other differences that follow, but his treatment of the scriptures regarding man and woman sharply contrasts with mine. Dr. Hamilton tells his podcast listeners all they need to do to resolve this debate is to read the Bible. This implies that their reading of the English Bible is sufficient, not just for salvation, on which I agree with him, but also to resolve the many disputed issues regarding women in the church. The complementarian perspective he espouses is, unfortunately, dependent on dubious English translations on many points. Mm. Translation makes a huge difference here. If you read the qualifications for overseer in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, in the American Bible Society's the Contemporary English Version or the Common English Bible, you will find not a single masculine pronoun. But in many other versions, you will find over a dozen masculine pronouns added to the original Greek text and the subject changed from anyone to any man. In fact, there's no masculine pronoun in either list of qualifications, and the stated subject in both lists is anyone. Yeah. Related to this, Dr. Hamilton and I appear to place different weight on how essential careful study of the Bible can be to resolve debated issues. Acts 17.11 states, The Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica. For they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. 
Furthermore, the Bible places great weight on meditation on Scripture. The goal of meditation is for Scripture to transform our thinking. If we are to be truly disciples of Jesus, we must read Scripture with humility and an openness to let God's Word change our opinions. The Westminster Confession of Faith, Article 7, states, All things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. Yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of scripture or other that not only the learned but the unlearned in a due use of ordinary means may attain unto a sufficient understanding of them. I began my research on this issue assuming that the Bible prohibited women from teaching or having authority over man. It was careful study of God's word that changed my understanding of many passages. I did not want to give up what I thought was my authority as head of my wife so much that I urged my wife to include in her marriage vows that she would obey me. (laughs) Careful study of God's word in Greek, however, exposed the error of my former interpretation and forced me to give up that self-serving interpretation. A superficial reading of scripture can be dangerous. Large segments of the church used a literal reading of the Bible to defend slavery. My son Brennan, who's doing a PhD in history, told me that during Prohibition, the King James translation of Colossians 2.21, touch not, taste not, handle not, was often used as biblical proof that drinking alcoholic beverages is a sin. The NIV 2011 translation, however, illuminates how its context shows this to be a merely human command that Paul opposes. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual force of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Quote, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Similarly, it makes a huge difference in debate over women's roles, whether 1 Corinthians 14, 34 to 35, let women be silenced in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, it's a disgrace for women to speak in church, is Paul's command, or a quotation from someone who said, who's, uh, 30, verse 37 says, thinks he is a prophet or spiritually gifted. The careful study of scripture in the original languages has historically been transformative on crucial issues. For example, my son Brennan informed me that the Reformation was sparked by Martin Luther's recognition that the Greek verb dikaiao, to be justified, Mm. is passive when referring to believers being made righteous. In his preface to his commentary in Galatians, he writes, but this most excellent righteousness, that of faith, I mean, which God imputes to us through Christ without works, is neither political nor ceremonial, nor is it the righteousness of God's law, nor does it consist in works. It is quite the opposite. That is to say, it is passive, whereas the others are active. Therefore, it seems to me this righteousness of faith or Christian righteousness can well be called passive righteousness. And on this discovery, he writes, at this, I felt myself to be born again (laughs) anew and to enter through the open gates into paradise itself. This points to what appears to be a third point of difference between Dr. Hamilton's approach to scripture 
and my own reverence for the biblical text. His appeal to just read the Bible appears to be a flat view of biblical authority. The Bible itself, however, clearly distinguishes between more important and less important issues. Mm. Matthew 23, 23 to 24 reports that Jesus said, Woe to you, teachers of the law, you hypocrites! You give a tithe of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. According to Jesus, some biblical commands are less important, teeny gnats, and others are more important, big camels. <laughs> Jesus repeatedly emphasizes love as the fulfillment of the law, and love of the brethren as the mark of a Christian. Consequently, I urge you to take note whether in this debate someone speaks in an unloving way of another brother or sister, or does things that hurt another brother, brother or sister. As Jesus' example shows us, it can be essential to speak the truth in love, especially when people are doing something harmful to others. I humbly suggest that those who throw egalitarians and women out of church leadership are straining out the gnat. If it is even that in the Bible of gender roles, at the expense of the camel of Christian charity. Yeah. Another key theme of the New Testament, and especially in Paul's letters, and one that the New Testament explicitly identifies as important, is Christian liberty. Galatians 5.1 states, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Galatians applies this to circumcision, the law, ceremonial regulations, and repudiates any special privileges for Jews over Greeks, free persons over slaves, and men over women. Romans 14 applies this to food regulations. And as verse 13 in the NIV states, instead, make up your mind not to put a stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. In 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 11, apply this to men and women praying and prophesying and affirm that in Christ, neither is separate from the other. Hmm. 1 Corinthians 12 and 14 applies it to spiritual gifts, which God sovereignly gives all believers for upbuilding the entire church. God's gifting of men and women, old and young, at Pentecost shows this being fulfilled in the church, in Acts 2. Consequently, any interpretation of any passage that contradicts the equal standing of men and women in Christ should be immediately suspect, just as any interpretation of any passage that contradicts the equal standing of Jew and Gentile and slave, in Christ, slave and free in Christ should be immediately suspect. It deeply concerns me that Dr. Hamilton's blog states, if complementarians in leadership at churches, schools, or ministries want to retain complementarian, they cannot give leadership to egalitarians. The Bible does not identify many sins. The Bible does identify many sins and calls on its leadership to be above reproach. So there's a biblical basis for excluding practicing homosexuals from leadership in the church, but the Bible never says it's a sin for a woman to be in leadership, and it certainly never prohibits giving leadership to egalitarians. 
Okay. Yeah, well, those are those are a lot of differences, and, and it's, you know, again, some things to really give us something to think about. In both your interview and in Dr. Hamilton's, I asked you to leave my listeners and me with a parting message, uh, something to think about after the, you know, what has gone on for about two and a half hours now. After all of that, is there anything that you really, most of all, more than anything else, want us to walk away from today's discussion thinking about? Remember that God gives grace to the humble. So on this, as any issue on which many Christians come to differing conclusions, read the scriptures on your knees with an open mind and an open heart, asking the Holy Spirit to open your eyes to God's truth. Be like the Bereans, whose nobility of character was demonstrated by the searching the scriptures to see whether these things are so. Peter gives us a wonderful example. Imagine how he must have felt when Paul called him a hypocrite and accused him of acting contrary to the gospel in Galatia. Yet he writes that all Paul's letters, and they always included Galatians, are scripture. Now that shows true humility. Mm. The Holy Spirit can change even the most self-willed person who has the humility to consider that they might be wrong and repent. Do not underestimate the transforming power of the Holy Spirit in the lives of people like Paul and Peter. When you read radical statements of the newness of life in Christ, do not assume that the Holy Spirit could not have transformed relationships between the sexes, even in a hierarchical culture. And do not assume that the Holy Spirit cannot transform your relationships. I have great hope for the church. I know that the Holy Spirit can transform deeply ingrained prejudices. I know this because he's done it in my own life, and he's done it on this very issue. The key is to be open to let the Holy Spirit, through the scriptures, transform your whole understanding and life. Don't be afraid to take scripture at face value. Be open to the obvious meaning of text, such as, there is no Jew-Greek division. There is no slave-free division. There is no male and female in Christ. And from 1 Corinthians 11, the most important thing is that woman is not separate from man, and man is not separate from woman in the Lord. When the Bible commands us to submit to one another using the reciprocal pronoun, don't dismiss that it's really reciprocal. Don't dismiss it as so-called mutual submission. Embrace the obvious meaning of the text. And when a text repeats three times, let women be silent in the churches for they are not permitted to speak. It's a disgrace for a woman to speak in church. Don't just dismiss the obvious meaning. Ask what the obvious meaning indicates about the text. Mm. Don't simply dismiss the strong textual evidence that this was originally in the margin. Consider what it in indicates. Don't simply dismiss that this is a quotation of, that, that this is a quotation of a false prophecy or a comment that someone wrote in the margin was later inserted in, into the text. That may be what happened. Try to put yourself in the shoes of the original recipients of Paul's letters. Try to listen to the text as they would. When your translations seem to contradict other things in scripture, look at a standard Greek dictionary to see what the word meant back then. Be sensitive to the historical and cultural differences between you and the text. Don't just assume that because head means boss in English, that it meant that in Greek. <laughs> and if Paul explains what he means by head using apposition, as he does twice, as source and his savior, believe him. Mm. 
He knew what he intended. So when he explains it, accept it. One key way you can avoid misreading the text is this. Do not let a highly contested passage become the lens through which you read the rest of Scripture. Mm. There is no clear instance of the word Paul used in 1 Timothy 2.12, authentic meaning to exercise authority until 300 years after Paul. So don't interpret every other statement by Paul through the dubious axiom that women must not exercise authority over man. At least seriously consider the far more natural reading of the text in its context, that Paul was only prohibiting women in Ephesus from assuming independent authority to teach men. Let Listen to the Holy Spirit as he guides you into all truth. He will show you what truths of Scripture are most important. Remember that love is the heart of the law, so treat others with charity. The Holy Spirit transformed the thinking of Paul and Peter. He transformed my thinking, and he can transform the thinking and life of every one of you. Yeah, yeah, that's very true. Well, you know, since since the previous interviews that I did with you and Dr. Hamilton, I've come across one or two books that I found helpful in learning more about this debate. Uh, besides your own book, Men and Women, One in Christ, are there any other books that you do, that you think do a good job of presenting the biblical case for egalitarianism, which you'd recommend to my listeners and me? Wow. Uh, there's so many. Gordon Fee's commentaries on 1 Corinthians and 1 Timothy are masterful. His treatment of 1 Corinthians 14, 34-5 is a classic. Uh, Discovering Biblical Equality, Complementarity Without Hierarchy, edited by Ron, Ron Pierce of Biola uh, and others, is an excellent resource. There's a journal called Priscilla Papers. It's a wonderful resource. It's full of insightful, fresh, and ironic studies. Its aim is not to tear down, but to build up. Uh, I've read uh, many, many articles in both Priscilla Papers and the Journal of Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, and almost every article in the Journal of Manhood, Manhood and Womanhood is tearing down. It's accusing, uh, and often it's unfairly accusing. I have never seen an unfair accusation in Priscilla Papers in all the years of reading it. It's an excellent paper. Although he's not an evangelical, Ellen J. Epps, Jr., the first woman apostle, is masterful in untangling the web of how, in spite of the unanimous, credible testimony of the first millennium of the church, that Junia was a woman outstanding among the apostles, the idea that she was a man became widespread. And you can find many egalitarian studies on the www.cbeinternational.org website. Okay, I'll make sure to include links to as many of those things as I can in the show notes. Uh, and in case anybody's listening who didn't listen to our previous interview, where can they go to find you on the web? www.pbpain.com is where you can uh, see my interaction on this whole issue with many different people. Uh, you can order the book at a huge discount. You can download free many of my articles with the publisher's permission, including my studies with Paul Kennard at the Vatican. Thank you, Chris, for the privilege of sharing with you. And may the Lord grant everyone hearing these words his joy as you discover ever more deeply the transforming truth of the gospel. Well, and thank you so much for your time. So there's Dr. Philip Payne's response to Dr. Jim Hamilton. Please do remember that I'm looking for a complementarian to debate, an egalitarian on my show. And stay tuned for the next episode of the podcast for an interview with Dr. Michael Brown. Until then... 